Section 42 of The Martyrdom of Man by Winwood Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 Intellect. Part 6. In the first period of the human herd, cooperation was merely instinctive, as it is in a herd of dog faced baboons. But when the intelligence of man was sufficiently developed, they realized the fact that the welfare of each individual depended on the welfare of the clan, and that the welfare of the clan depended on the welfare of each efficient individual. They then endeavoured to support, by laws, the interests of the association, and though, owing to their defective understandings, they allowed, and even enjoined, many customs injurious to their own welfare, yet, on the whole, they lived well and wisely within the circle of their clan. It will now be seen that the moral laws by which we are guided are all due to the law of self-preservation. It was considered wicked and wrong to assault, to rob, to deceive, or in any way to ill-treat or offend an able-bodied member of the clan, for if he were killed or disabled, his services were lost to the clan. And if he were made discontented, he might desert to another corporation. But these vices were wrong, merely because they were injurious. Even murder, in the abstract, was not regarded by them as a sin. They killed their sickly children, and dined upon their superannuated parents without remorse, for the community was profited by their removal. This feeling of fidelity to the clan, though no doubt often supported by arguments addressed to the reason, was not with them a matter of calculation. It was rooted in their hearts. It was a true instinct inherited from animal and ancient days. It was with them an idea of duty, obedience to which was prompted by an impulse, neglect of which was punished by remorse. In all fables there is some fact, and the legends of the noble savage possess this element of truth, that savages, within their own communion, do live according to the golden rule, and would, in fact, be destroyed by their enemies if they did not but they are not in reality good men. They have no conscience outside their clan. Their virtue, after all, is only a kind of honour among thieves. They resemble those illustrious criminals who were excellent husbands and fathers, and whose biographies cannot be read without a shudder. Yet it is from these people that our minds and our morals are descended. The history of morals is the extension of the reciprocal or selfish virtues from the clan to the tribe, from the tribe to the nation, from the nation to all communities living under the same government, civil or religious, then to people of the same colour, and finally to all mankind. In the primitive period, the males contended at the courting season for the possession of the females. Polygamy prevailed, and thus the strongest and most courageous males were the fathers of all the children that were born. The males of the second class died old maids. The weakly members of the herd were also unable to obtain their share of food. But when the period of brute force was succeeded by the period of law, it was found that men of sickly frames were often the most intelligent, and that they could make themselves useful to the clan by inventing weapons and traps, or at least by manufacturing them. In return for their sedentary labour, they were given food, and as they were too weak to obtain wives by force, 
Females also were given them. The system of love duels was abolished. The women belonged to the community and were divided fairly, like the food. The existence of the clan depended on the number of its fighting men, and therefore on the number of children that were born. The birth of a male child was a matter of rejoicing. The mother was honoured as a public benefactress. Then breeding began to be studied as an art. Young persons were methodically paired. It was observed that children inherit the qualities and inclinations of their parents, and so the brave and the intelligent were selected to be sires. If food was scarce, and if children were difficult to rear, the newborn infants were carefully examined, and those that did not promise well were killed. Promiscuous intercourse on the part of the females was found to result in sterility, and was forbidden. Cohabitation during the suckling period, which lasted at least three years, was supposed to injure the mother's milk, on which the savage baby is entirely dependent, and during that period the woman was set apart. Premature unions among children were forbidden, and sometimes prevented by infibulation, but savages seldom seem to be aware that for the young to marry as soon as the age of puberty has been attained is injurious to the womb and to the offspring. The ancient Germans, however, had excellent laws on this subject. Finally, the breeders made a discovery from which has resulted one of the most universal of moral laws, and one which of all laws has been the least frequently infringed. Clans made war on foreign clans, not only for game preserves and fish waters and root and berry grounds, but also for the purpose of making female prisoners. A bachelor was expected to catch a wild wife for his own benefit, and for that of the community. He accordingly prowled round the village of the enemy, and when an eligible person came down to the brook to fill her pitcher, or went into the bush to gather sticks, he burst forth from his ambush, knocked her down with his club, and carried her off in triumph to his own people. It was observed that the foreign wives produced more children, and stronger children, than the home-born wives and also that the nearer the blood relationship between husband and wife, the more weakly and the less frequent were the offspring. On this account, a law was passed forbidding a marriage between those who were closely related to one another. Sometimes, even, it was forbidden to marry within the tribe at all, and all wives were obtained from foreign tribes by means of capture or exchange. These laws relating to marriage, enacted by the elders, and issued as orders of the gods, were at first obeyed by the young merely out of fear. But in the second generation they were ingrained on the minds of children and were taken under the protection of the conscience. When the clans or families first leagued together in order to form a town, the conscience of each man was confined to his own circle. He left it at home when he went out into the town. He considered it laudable to cheat his fellow townsmen in a bargain, or to tell them clever lies. If he committed a murder or a theft, his conscience uttered no reproach. But each father was responsible for the crimes of the members of his clan. He might inflict what punishment he chose on the actual offender, but he himself was a culprit in the eyes of the law, and was condemned to pay the fine. If the municipal government was not fully formed, the injured family took its own revenge. It did not seek for the thief or murderer himself. The individual did not exist. All the family to them were one. 
No man, therefore, could break a law without exposing his revered father and all the members of his family to expense, and even to danger of their lives. No savage dares to be unpopular at home. The weight of opprobrium is more than any man can bear. His happiness depends on the approbation of those with whom he lives. There is no world for him outside his clan. The town laws were, therefore, respected by each man for the sake of his family, and then, by a well-known mental process, they came to be respected for themselves, and were brought under the moral law which was written on the heart. Men ceased to be clansmen, they became citizens. They next learned to cherish and protect those foreigners who came to trade, and who thus conferred a benefit upon the town and at last the great discovery was made. Offences against the golden rule are wrong in themselves, and displeasing to the gods. It is wicked for a man to do that which he would not wish a man to do to him. It is wrong for a man to do that to a woman which he would not wish done to his sister or his wife. Murder, theft, falsehood, and fraud, the infliction of physical or mental pain, all these from time immemorial had been regarded as crimes between clansmen and clansmen. They were now regarded as crimes between man and man. And here we come to a singular fact. The more men are sunk in brutality, the less frequently they sin against their conscience. And as men become more virtuous, they also become more sinful. With the primeval man, the conscience is an instinct. It is never disobeyed. With the savage, the conscience demands little, that little it demands under pain of death. It is, therefore, seldom disobeyed. The savage seldom does that which he feels to be wrong. But he does not feel it wrong to commit incest, to eat grandfather soup, to kill a sickly child like a kitten, to murder anyone who lives outside his village. In the next period, the matrimonial and religious laws, which have proceeded from the science of breeding and the fear of ghosts, place a frequent restraint upon his actions. He now begins to break the moral law. He commences a career of sin. Yet he is, on the whole, a better man. We finally arrive at the civilized man. He has refined sentiments and a cultivated intellect and now scarcely a day passes in which he does not offend against his conscience. His life is passed in self-reproach. He censures himself for an hour that he has wasted, for an unkind word that he has said, for an impure thought which he has allowed to settle for a moment on his mind. Such lighter sins do not indeed trouble ordinary men, and there are few at present whose conscience reproaches them for sins against the intellect but the lives of all modern men are tormented with desires which may not be satisfied, with propensities which must be quelled. The virtues of man have originated in necessity, but necessity developed the vices as well. It was essential for the preservation of the clan that its members should love one another and live according to the golden rule. Men, therefore, are born with an instinct of virtue, but it was also essential for the existence of the clan that its members should be murderers and thieves, crafty and ferocious, fraudulent and cruel. These qualities, therefore, are transmitted by inheritance. But as the circle of the clan widens, these qualities are rarely useful to their possessors, 
and finally are stigmatized as criminal propensities. But because their origin was natural and necessary, their guilt is not lessened an iota. All men are born with these propensities. All know that they are evil. All can suppress them if they please. There are some, indeed, who appear to be criminals by nature, who do not feel it wrong to prey upon mankind. These are cases of reversion. They are savages or wild beasts. They are the enemies of society and deserve the prison to which, sooner or later, they are sure to come. But it is rare indeed that these savage instincts resist a kind and judicious education. They may all be stifled in the nursery. Life is full of hope and consolation. We observe that crime is on the decrease and that men are becoming more humane. The virtues, as well as the vices, are inherited. In every succeeding generation, the old, ferocious impulses of our race will become fainter and fainter, and at length they will finally die away. There is one moral sentiment which cannot be ascribed to the law of gregarious preservation, and which is therefore of too much importance to be entirely passed over, though it cannot here be treated in detail. The sense of decorum which is outraged at the exposure of the legs in Europe is as artificial as that which is shocked at the exhibition of the female face in the East. If the young lady of London thinks that the absence of underclothing in the Arab peasant girl looks rather odd, on the other hand, no Arab lady could look at her portrait in an evening dress without a feeling of discomfort and surprise. Yet although the minor details of nudity are entirely conventional, although complete nudity prevails in some parts of Africa where yet a petticoat grows on every tree, and where the people are by no means indifferent to their personal appearance, for they spend half their lives upon their coiffure, although in most savage countries the unmarried girl is never permitted to wear clothes, although decoration is everywhere antecedent to dress, still the traveller does find that a sentiment of decency, though not universal, is at least very common among savage people. Self-interest here affords an explanation, but not in the human state. We must trace back the sentiment to its remote and secret source in the animal kingdom. Propriety grows out of cleanliness through association of ideas. Cleanliness is a virtue of the lower animals, and is equivalent to decoration. It is nourished by vanity, which proceeds from the love of sexual display, and that from the desire to obtain a mate. And so here we do arrive at utility after all. It is a part of animal cleanliness to deposit a part, and even to hide whatever is uncleanly. And men, going farther still, conceal whatever is the cause of the uncleanly. The tuaricks of the desert give this as their reason for bandaging the mouth. It has, they say, the disgusting office of chewing the food, and is therefore not fit to be seen. The custom probably originated as a precaution against the poisonous wind and the sandy air, yet the explanation of the people themselves, though incorrect, is not without its value in affording a clue to the operations of the savage mind. But the sense of decorum must not be used by writers on mind to distinguish man from the lower animals, for savages exist who are as innocent of shame and decorum as the beasts and birds. There is in women a peculiar timidity, which is due to nature alone, 
and which has grown out of the mysterious terror attendant on the functions of reproductive life. But the other qualities, physical or mental, which we prize in women, are the result of matrimonial selection. At first the female was a chattel common to all, or belonging exclusively to one, who was by brute force the despot of the herd. When property was divided and secured by law, the women became the slaves of their husbands, hewing the wood, drawing the water, working in the fields, while the men sewed and washed the clothes, looked after the house, and idled at the toilet, oiling their hair and adorning it with flowers, arranging their chignon or the wig of vegetable fibre, filing their teeth, boring their ears, putting studs into their cheeks, staining their gums, tattooing fanciful designs upon their skins, tying strings on their arms to give them a rounded form, bathing their bodies in warm water, rubbing them with lime juice and oil, perfuming them with the powdered bark of an aromatic tree. Decoration among the females was not allowed. It was then considered unwomanly to engage in any but what are now regarded as masculine occupations. Wives were selected only for their strength. They were hard, coarse, ill-favoured creatures, as inferior to the men in beauty as the females are to the males almost throughout the animal kingdom. But when prisoners of war were tamed and broken in, the women ceased to be drudges and became the ornaments of life. Poor men select their domestic animals for utility. Rich men select them for appearance. In the same manner, when husbands became rich, they chose wives according to their looks. At first the hair of women was no longer than that of men probably not so long. But long hair is universally admired. False hair is in use all over the world, from the Eskimos of the Arctic Circle to the Negroes of Gaboon. By the continued selection of long-haired wives, the flowing tresses of the sex have been produced. In the same manner, the elegance of the female form, its softness of complexion, its gracefulness of curve, are not less our creation than the symmetry and speed of the racehorse, the magnificence of garden flowers, and the flavour of orchard fruits. Even the reserved demeanour of women, their refined sentiments, their native modesty, their sublime unselfishness and power of self-control, are partly due to us. The wife was at first a domestic animal, like a dog or a horse. She could not be used without the consent of the proprietor but he was always willing to let her out for hire. Among savages, it is usually the duty of the host to lend a wife to his stranger guest, and if the loan is declined, the husband considers himself insulted. Adultery is merely a question of debt. The law of debt is terribly severe. The body of the insolvent belongs to the creditor to sell or to kill. But no other feelings are involved in the question. The injured husband is merely a creditor, and is always pleased that the debt has been incurred. Petitioner and co-respondent may often be seen smoking a friendly pipe together after the case has been proved and the money has been paid. However, as the intelligence expands and the sentiments become more refined, marriage is hallowed by religion. Adultery is regarded as a shame to the husband and a sin against the gods. And a new feeling, jealousy, enters for the first time the heart of man. The husband desires to monopolize his wife, body and soul. He intercepts her glances, 
he attempts to penetrate into her thoughts. He covers her with clothes. He hides even her face from the public gaze. His jealousy, not only anxious for the future, is extended over the past. Thus women, from their earliest childhood, are subjected, by the selfishness of man, to severe but salutary laws. Chastity becomes the rule of female life. At first, it is preserved by force alone. Male slaves are appointed to guard the women, who, except sometimes from momentary pique, never betray one another, and are allied against the men. But, as the minds of men are gradually elevated and refined through the culture of the intellect, there rises within them a sentiment which is unknown in savage life. They conceive a contempt for those pleasures which they share with the lowest of mankind, and even with the brutes. They feel that this instinct is degrading, they strive to resist it, they endeavour to be pure, but that instinct is strong with the accumulated power of innumerable generations, and the noble desire is weak and newly born. It can seldom be sustained except by the hopes and fears of religion, or by the nobler teaching of philosophy. But in women this new virtue is assisted by laws and customs which were established long before by the selfishness of men. Here, then, the abhorrence of the impure, the sense of duty, the fear of punishment, all unite and form a moral law which women themselves enforce, becoming the guardians of their own honour, and treating as a traitor to her sex the woman who betrays her trust. For her the most compassionate have no mercy. She has broken those laws of honour on which society is founded. It is forbidden to receive her, it is an insult to women to allude to her existence, to pronounce her name. She is condemned without inquiry, as the officer is condemned who has shown cowardice before the foe. For the life of women is a battlefield. Virtue is their courage, and peace of mind is their reward. It is certainly an extraordinary fact that women should be subjected to a severe social discipline from which men are almost entirely exempt. As we have shown, it is explained by history. It is due to the ancient subjection of woman to the man. But it is not the women who are to be pitied. It is they who alone are free. For by that discipline they are preserved from the tyranny of vice. It would be well for men if they also were ruled by a severe opinion. The passions are always foes, but it is only when they have been encouraged that they are able to become masters. It is only when they have allied themselves with habit that their terrible power becomes known. They resemble wild beasts which men feed and cherish until they are themselves devoured by their playmates. What miseries they cause! How many intellects they paralyse! How many families they ruin! How many innocent hearts they break asunder! How many lives they poison! How many young corpses they carry to the tomb! What fate can be more wretched than that of the man who resigns himself to them? As to the beautiful mind of Mendelssohn, every sound, whatever it might be, the bubbling of a brook, the rustling of the wind among the trees, the voice of a bird, even the grating of a wheel, inspired a musical idea. So, how melancholy is the contrast! So, how deep is the descent! So to the mind that is steeped in sensuality, Every sight, every sound, calls up an impure association. The voluptuary dreads to be alone. 
His mind is a monster that exhibits foul pictures to his eyes. His memories are temptations. He struggles, he resists, but it is all in vain. The habits, which once might so easily have been broken, are now harder than adamant, are now stronger than steel. His life is passed between desire and remorse. When the desire is quenched, he is tortured by his conscience. He soothes it with a promise, and then the desire comes again. He sinks lower and lower, until indulgence gives him no pleasure, and yet abstinence cannot be endured. To stimulate his jaded senses, he enters strange and tortuous paths which lead him to that awful borderland where all is darkness, all is horror, where vice lies close to crime. Yet there was a time when that man was as guileless as a girl. He began by learning vice from the example of his companions, just as he learned to smoke. Had his education been more severe, had the earliest inclinations been checked by the fear of ruin and disgrace, he would not have acquired the most dangerous of all habits. That men should be subjected to the same discipline as women is therefore to be wished for, and although the day is far distant, there can be no doubt that it will come, and the future historian of morals will record with surprise that in the nineteenth century society countenanced vices in men which it punished in women with banishment for life. End of section 42